Forgot to turn that on. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin, for that introduction. And uh, I have enjoyed being here and having the opportunity to share the Word of God with you. Um, we used to tell people when Kevin was little, uh, he entered the room mouth first. <clears throat> and usually he would say something that needed to be explained or apologized for. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and if you've ever, uh, if you've been here for a while and you've heard him preach, uh, occasionally when he goes off script, <laughs> when he strays from his notes, look out, uh, anything can be said. But uh, I, I love him to death and I appreciate him and appreciate his ministry here. And thank you for your graciousness to us and allowing us to come and share the word of God. Uh, and we're getting ready this Thursday. We'll be flying back to Montana, to Hamilton, Montana, uh, to the frozen north. Last night, someone checked the weather for me, and it was snowing there. But uh, the day we land, it's supposed to be, I think, um, 60 degrees. So that's like a heat wave, you know. <laughs> and uh, we're looking forward to getting back. But we have enjoyed this time uh, thawing out and having some time with family, most of all. And thank you for the privilege to share the Word of God with you. This morning, as we look once again at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, let us receive this as the revelation of God, as the word of God, and not the word of men. Uh, <clears throat> Hebrews says in the very first chapter that in times past, God spoke to us through the prophets uh, of the Old Testament, and in these days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And what we have is the mind of Christ as the Spirit of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, uh, gave this to the apostles and to the writers of the New Testament. And whoever the writer of Hebrews was, we'll leave that up for debate today. We'll not spend time trying to answer that. And I know there's different views, but he was inspired of God to give us what we will look at. So let's begin by reading our text today. Uh, the first week we looked at verses 1 through 4. Uh, and then the second week we looked at verses 4 through 11. And today we want to conclude... Though there is more to this chapter, time will not allow. We're going to go as far as verse 17, verses 12 through 17. So let's read this, and then we'll ask for God's grace. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths with your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue after peace with all men, and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time uh, before you and in your word. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to put all of the concerns of life that capture our hearts and minds, things we need to do, things we need to remember. Help us to just move them, Father, aside, that we might focus wholly and completely upon you, and we might hear your truth and receive it as such. Give us, Father, receptive hearts, and may we welcome your word as it speaks to us, each one, this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now when we looked at <clears throat> verses 1 through 4, 
of chapter 12 here, you may recall that the writer of Hebrews used the analogy of running a long distance race. And he says at the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And if you've ever been a runner at some point in your life, then you know how true it is when I say that in a marathon, halfway is always the hardest point. Before the race starts, as you're gathered together with all the other runners, there is a kind of camaraderie that is shared together as everybody gets their numbers and everything straight. And then, you know, uh, that exciting anticipation that is in, in each of you. And then there's the crack of the starter's gun. And as that mass of runners moves and surges forward, the adrenaline is flowing and the endorphins kick in. The crowd is cheering and you envision that you are about to run the best race of your life and break all the records that you could possibly break. That's the beginning. And then at the end of that race, as you near the finish line and you're almost there, the finish line is in sight and a fresh surge of energy comes out of nowhere. The pain and exhaustion is forgotten and you know that if you've made it this far, then you can surely finish the race and complete it. But it's at the halfway point that one of the longest miles in the middle of that race takes place. That's the killer, isn't it? Your fuel gauge is hovering above empty. Your body is suffering from dehydration and exhaustion. The pain in your muscles and joints is screaming at you. Your confidence begins to wane. Your legs feel like rubber and your lungs feel like they're about to burst. And you realize that you're in that agonizing grind of halfway. You ever experienced that? All you can do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other, plodding forward one foot after the other in the next step and the next step, just boring, dogged tedium. That's the middle of the race. And that is where the runners are always tempted the most to drop down. For halfway is always the hardest. The writer of Hebrews is using the analogy from the world of running. And he has told us, if you recall, that the Christian life is like an ultra marathon. Sometimes it's uphill and against the wind. Sometimes it's just tedious, long, boring miles year after year after year. And you recall that we mentioned something else about this race. Not only is it a long race, a marathon, it's also a relay. Running down through the ages of time, an unbroken line of faithful men and women, some of who are listed for us in Hebrews chapter 11, have run their leg of the race with the baton of faith in hand, passing it from one generation to the next. And we, who are here today, who are running that race as well, have seen our fathers and our mothers place firmly in our own hands the faith that we now embrace. And now we carry it. And it's our turn to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But it's always halfway that is the hardest, isn't it? Folks, this message today is for men and women who have been Christians for a long time. The thrill of the beginning is over. The end is not yet in sight. And now you find yourself in that agonizing grind of halfway. And some days you find yourself maybe surfing Craigslist looking for a used Winnebago so you can hit the road and drop out, although you won't do that here. You might look for a maybe a sailboat to go island hopping and move from, you know, island to island. Can't get very far in a Winnebago here, <laughs> but uh, go around the island several times, but that'd be about it. But the struggles from day to day to persevere in the faith 
have become like that middle mile in a long distance run. And we want to just quit and drop out. You're overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the demands of raising a family, making a home, and even just living the life of a Christian. And you want to just, you know, step aside and rest and not run anymore. May I just encourage you and call your attention to the, to the, the screen behind me. And the question that we want to answer today, key thought, how do we overcome when we're overwhelmed? How do we overcome when we're overwhelmed? Certainly, these first century Jewish believers would have asked the writer of Hebrews that question. For they have been persecuted, they've been rejected, they have lost everything for Christ. Many of them have even been disowned by their own families because they've embraced this Messiah, this Jesus Christ. At first it was exciting and thrilling for them. And they could bear it because, you know, it was the beginning of the race. But now they've been in it for a while. The news worn off. And frankly, they're tired of the struggle and they want to just give up. Temptation has come to drop out and to quit. So in verse 12, the writer of Hebrews picks up an analogy of running a race that he began in chapter 12 earlier. And he wants us to, to focus upon some insights he's going to give to us on how to run that race and finish strong and pass the baton on to the next generation. So let's look at some of the things, the insights that he gives us in this passage today. First of all, notice in verse 12, we need to refocus on the goal. Refocus on the goal. He says in verse 12, once again, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Now, some of your Bibles <clears throat> that you will notice... Um, like my NASB that I'm reading from here, uh, translate that strengthen the hands that are weak. Others will translate it arms that are weak. But that phrase, that are weak, is what's important because that comes from the Greek uh, periemi and it means to relax or to loosen. This is a runner's term which describes the motion of allowing your arms to drop to your side and kind of dangle uh, as a runner would do when you're tired. I used to do that sometimes I would, when I would run back in the days trying, trying to catch the, the Noah's Ark before it, you know, <clears throat> departed. So I would miss that. That's how old I am. But in any event, uh, trying to run back when I could run, <laughs> that uh, my arms would begin to almost get numb uh, and I'd have to drop them and just let them hang and run for like 50 yards like that and then bring them back up again. And because that, that's what I would do to, to uh, you know, get, get past that. And so that's what he's talking about here. Uh, this term, arms that are, are, or hands that are weak, uh, is describing an exhausted runner who's hunched over, even struggling to hold his arms up. And if you know anything about running at all, then you are maybe a little surprised to find out that it's not the legs, but often the arms that go first. And so this is describing an exhausted runner whose arms are hanging at his side. And then he gives us something else here. Notice this term, needs that are feeble. Needs that are feeble. And the word feeble here comes from the Greek paraluo, which is often used in the gospel, such as Matthew 8, verse 6, to describe someone who is paralyzed. We get our word paralytic from it. Now, most runners will tell you that the thing that they fear the most is what's going to happen to their knees. The knees will swell up sometimes. They'll get so exhausted and inflamed that they begin to just lock up and become numb with pain. So what he's describing here is a runner in the middle of a race who is just absolutely worn out. His arms are hanging at his side. His knees are about to give out. And he just wants to fall by the side and just quit. Just rest. 
In fact, he's quoting here from an Old Testament passage. Indeed, almost all these verses in our text today are quotes from other Old Testament passages in your Bibles. And this particular one is taken from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3 and 4. And here Isaiah envisions the deliverance of his people uh, who are in exile. A people who have been ravaged and you know, pillaged by the Babylonians who've taken them into captivity. Their homeland has been uh, made desolate. Uh, their beloved city of Jerusalem has just been flattened and leveled. And they have been driven away in chains like somebody's livestock to be slaves in a foreign land to a foreign people. And in their despair, they've given up hope. And like runners who are about to give up, their hands are weak, their knees are feeble. And so the prophet Isaiah says to them, he says, encourage the exhausted. The word exhausted there literally translates slack hands. And strengthen the feeble. The word feeble there literally translates tottering knees. Verse 4, say to those with palpitating hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. So... The writer of Hebrews here takes this great statement of hope from the prophet Isaiah to say to these weary, persecuted believers there in Palestine who are about to throw in the towel and give up, and he says, don't quit. Don't give up. Bring those hands back up. Strengthen those knees. Eyes straight ahead and keep on running. I wish that when it comes to times like that, we could get some kind of an instant blessing from God in such moments. I wish there was some Christian experience that would transform us from that dogged one foot after another, you know, part of the Christian life, so that we would have instant victory, instant sanctification, instant blessing. But we must remember that we are in a race, and that race is not easy. And when we grow weary like all runners do, we have to discipline our mind and discipline our spirit, pick up our hands, pick up our feet, and keep on running. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. And here he's talking about his life. If you back up all the way to verse uh, the beginning of the chapter, he comes down and he talks about what I call his resume of rubbish. For he talks about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, and did all these things and accomplished all these things. He persecuted the church and so forth. In the eyes of Jews, he was top of the mark. But he says that resume is nothing but rubbish. And then he says this, verse 9, he says, That I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then this verse above you here, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. There's a jewel of, of theology, isn't there? Think about the fact that God reached down in your family, your background, your context, wherever you were, and he plucked you from the jaws of spiritual death and gave you life, gave you hope, gave you an eternal inheritance that is undiminished and fadeth not away. The writer of Hebrews says, I think back at my family and my upbringing in California, 
where I grew up. Not a bad upbringing. But God plucked me out of that family and called me to himself. And then he says, not only has God laid hold of me, but I'm striving to lay hold of him. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lays behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we see there not only the need to leave your past behind and understand that it's not important where God found you, it's important where he's pointed you. It's important where you're headed, where you're going, direction you're taking. And so we see this encouragement here. We see this encouragement to not give up. He says, I press on. I press on. I press on. That's a hard statement for us to hear, isn't it? When you're in the midst of a bad marriage or rocky finances or failing business and everything in you wants you to throw up your hands and just walk away. We need to remember Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What does that mean? It means that when we face trouble, folks, believers don't face problems and difficulties like this world faces them, do we? For we have been redeemed. Our minds are being renewed and transformed, and we're to weigh everything within the balance of the truth of God's word. We sift everything through the grid of scripture. That's why we call it the canon, the completed canon of scripture. And the word canon means measuring rod. Everything in life we measure against God's truth to find out whether it's right or not, whether it's true or not. God's word speaks to all of life. Secondly, on your outline, notice we need to concentrate on the course. Verse 13 continues, and notice he says here, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, who does the limb which is lame refer to? It refers to those people in verse 12 who are weak and feeble who want to quit who stumble along the path. He's making a statement here. He says, make straight or level the path for your feet. And in the Greek, it means to make a smooth path for your feet. A path without bumps or without chuck holes or without ruts to step in. You know, one of the things I think that runners fear more than anything, especially in cross-country running, is the trail itself, the course that they're running. Because they're running, you know, across open field sometimes and you might if you're not you know watching carefully you might step in a hole or on the side of a rock and roll your ankle or twist your knee and then you're done not only for the race maybe maybe f- forever at that point and this phrase of verse 13 put out of limb or put out of joint uh, is, a, is a very accurate and literal translation of the greek verb ektrepo which Thayer's uh, Greek study says means to wrench from its proper place. Vincent said it means to dislocate. So he's talking about a runner who is weary, he's tired, he's not paying attention to the path, he's not watching carefully where he steps, and that loss of focus causes him to step in a hole or a rut and throw his leg or twist his ankle, and he's done. Now this too is a quote 
It's a quote from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. If they'll put that up on the screen, Proverbs 4, verse 25 through 27. And Solomon here is giving counsel, advice to his son, his young son. And he says to him, son, there's a lot of paths that you can take in life. A lot of directions you can go. They may take you many, many places. But what I want you to do, son, is to follow that path of wisdom. The truth of God's word. Look not to the right, look not to the left. And then he says in verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Turn not to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Not long ago, we had a young man in our church there in Montana who was... um, well, he finished his education and he had a young lady he'd proposed to and they were set their wedding date and were going to get married. And so his father, because uh, we have a men's breakfast bi-monthly, <clears throat> and uh, he asked, uh, it was in the fall and the weather was still good. He said, can we do it at the lake? Because we have a, a lake close to our, our church called Como Lake, beautiful lake, and it has uh, an area there where you can have a campfire and there's some tables and such. And so we had a men's breakfast there. And he said, I want you to just have all the men just sit in a circle and just give them what advice they can give for my son as he faces this new chapter of his life. And you know what's interesting is after we got done eating, we we sat around this fire and uh, crisp air, fall, and almost without exception, every man there basically said this, don't do what I did. <laughs> do what God tells you to do. And most of them had horrendous stories about mistakes they'd made, places they went that they shouldn't have done, and things that they, you know, where they got in knucklehead decisions that got them in trouble. And, uh, you know, the point is that experience is a good teacher, but it's a hard one. And there's an easier way, and that's to follow God's word. I thought that was interesting. Solomon continues in chapter 5 of Proverbs, and he gives him this warning, talking about, in fact, there are no chapter divisions originally in the scriptures. We put those in there along with verse divisions to help us find a place in the Bible. When someone says, turn to such and such, we know where to go. And so the thought continues in chapter 5, and he says, my son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. And then he says this, he gives him a special warning. He says, for the lips of an adulteress drip with honey, and are smoother than oil in her speech, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of Sheol, or the grave. Back in 1980s, there was a man who was a great preacher by the name of Gordon MacDonald. He was a great preacher and a pastor, and he wrote a lot of books that enriched the lives of a great many Christians. He served as a pastor of a large church in Massachusetts, I think, became president of InterVarsity Fellowship and later president of World Vision. Well-known, well-thought-of, until his whole world came crashing down around him. When it was learned that he had entered into an adulterous affair with another woman who was not his wife. His life was crushed, his ministry crushed. He, he stepped in a hole, twisted his leg, and fell all the way to the bottom. Later, as he had recovered and been restored, he wrote about it and he said that he learned something. He learned that <clears throat> when he got in the fast lane of 
you know, power and success and notoriety, he became distracted. And when he became distracted with all the things that filled his busy schedule and his days, he forgot to watch the path. He forgot to look where he was stepping. And he stumbled. And he fell. Folks, there's a profound lesson for us here in this 12th chapter today. For when we are like that person in verse 12, spiritually weak, feeble, distracted, we're in danger of experiencing the warning of verse 13, stumbling and falling. I mean, you know how you keep from committing immoral thoughts, or immoral acts, rather? You keep from committing moral acts, immoral acts, by not allowing yourself to entertain immoral thoughts. What we think issues forth in behavior. Wrong thoughts issue forth in wrong behavior. Good thoughts and good behavior. Jesus said, as a man speak, thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so the mouth reveals what's in us, so our behavior reveals what's in us. We sometimes think as young men, it doesn't matter what we think as long as we don't do it. That's not true. And there are a great many shattered lives who stand as a testimony to the falsity of that, of that statement. We need to say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, I will bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Christ is to control even our thought life. We need to say with David in Psalms 139 verse 23, Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Are you brave enough to pray that prayer to God? God reveal the depths of my depravity. Reveal to me in my own heart and life where I need to change, where there's error, where there's something improper, perhaps even immoral. We need to say with David in Psalms 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Thirdly, as we hurry along, we need to pursue peace. Verse 14a, he says, pursue after peace with all men. And notice he says all men. So both believers and unbelievers were to live a life of peace, were to live in harmony, were to live without conflict. Paul says something about this in Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Turn there quickly. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. And Paul is giving us some insight here on uh, how to deal with conflict. And he says this. <clears throat> he says, Never pay back evil for evil with anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now that last phrase there, respect what is right in the sight of all men, simply means to live in keeping with your, with your calling. If you're a child of God, if you're called of Him, if you're a Christian, a believer in Christ, then live like it and act like it. Live as one would be expected to live. As a believer in Christ. Then he goes on to say this. If possible. So far as it depends upon you. Be at peace with all men. Verse 19 also. It's not up here. But it says this. Never take your own revenge beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. Which is written. Vengeance is mine. I shall repay. Says the Lord. And what that simply means is. Let God take care of it. Sometimes we get impatient. We want to help God out. Because he's not as quick as we want him to be to, you know, balance the books and balance the scales. And so we get involved in 
something that's not up to us. Whenever you seek vengeance, you're trespassing in God's territory. By the way, he does a better job of it than we do anyway. So just leave it to him. <laughs> and it'll all be taken care of if it needs to be taken care of. Sometimes God is gracious. But we need to let him take care of it. But we see here in this 18th verse a couple of things that are very, very important. Notice Paul's counsel here. He gives us two guidelines for peace with all men. Notice he says, first of all, if possible, I am so glad. The Holy Spirit directed Paul to clarify that. Because if you've lived as long as I have, you know full well it's not always possible, is it? There are some people in this world who are so set upon a course of conflict that no amount of reason or counsel or anything can dissuade them from it. doesn't matter whether you follow the steps of Matthew 18 or how much you plead with them or pray for them. They will not allow you to be at peace with them. But Paul's point here, I think, is this. Never let it be said that you were the reason that there was conflict, that you didn't do all that you could, if possible, if possible, he says, be at peace with all men. And then there's something else here. Notice it says, <clears throat> secondly, as far as it depends on you. And I think Paul recognizes that we're all at different stages in our, in our journey, our pilgrimage of faith. We're all at different levels of maturity. But even so, if there is a conflict, the source of that conflict should never be traced back to your feet. We're to be peacemakers, not conflict causers. I told them in the first service about <clears throat> a story I heard about a, a lady. I don't know where this took place, but the story said that um, she was parked in her car. It was a hot day. Her air conditioning wasn't working too well. And in front of her, at, in the, was at stoplight, there was an old man in a beat-up old VW Bug. And it was barely running. Uh, and uh, that was my first car, by the way, was a, was a, a VW, a 1956 VW. And it had a 36-horsepower engine, which is basically less than my riding lawnmower has. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, he was driving something like that. And she was just dying, and she couldn't, impatient. And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, when the light changed, he let the clutch out and killed the engine. Then he couldn't get it to start. And he's cranking it and cranking it. It's not starting. And she's laying on her horn, just blaring and blaring. And, uh, and she's, you know, uh, cussing and, and, you know, a litany of, of, of just obscenity. She's yelling at him, get that thing moving, old man, and so forth. And, and finally, she gives him the one-finger salute, you know. <laughs> and it just gets worse and worse and worse as time goes by. Uh, now, on the back of her car, this is, changes everything, is just plastered with bumper stickers. And all of them saying such things as, follow me to church, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You know, don't put that one on there, by the way. Uh, there's, there's the fish symbol. There's all the, I mean, a dozen, dozen bumper stickers. You know, why is it the people who put those on there are often the worst drivers? Why is that? I don't know. But <laughs> if you're going to not be a good driver, don't put those on there. But uh, anyway, she had all these on there, and he, 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 she's just screaming and screaming. She didn't know behind her was a cop in his car, and he flips his lights on. He gets out of his car. He walks up there, and he taps on the window. She rolls it down. And he says, license and registration. She gives it to him. He says, step out of the car, please. She does. He says, turn around, put your hands behind your back. He cuffs her, puts her in his patrol car, takes her to the station, and locks her up in a cell for about four hours by herself. Later, he comes back, and uh, 
left her out and says, okay, you can go, ma'am. She said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What was this all about? She said, why did you do this? We said, well, why did you bring me and lock me up? And she said, well, frankly, madam, I saw how you treated that old man in front of you. I watched you as you yelled obscenities at him. I watched you as you, you know, gave him the one finger salute. I saw how you were just, you know, out of control, impatient and uh, foaming at the mouth almost. He said, and then I read all your bumper stickers on the back of your car. Frankly, I thought you'd stolen the car. <laughs> she was not exactly a peacemaker. She was a conflict causer. And we don't want to be like that, do we? No, we want to be someone who ends conflict, or at least who helps make peace. Now, why is this so important to have peace? Not to be embroiled in conflict. It's because when there is conflict, everything that is important gets pushed aside. Moved to the back burner. Rescheduled for a later date. Remember Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, We have been called to run a race. Look at it again. He says that we are to not only run that race, but we're to do it with endurance. And we're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what we're to do. Why is it we always seem to focus on that phrase that says the sin which so easily entangles us. But we don't ever focus upon that which encumbers us. Because guess what? Conflict can be an encumbrance. We're to pursue peace with all men. But especially within the body of Christ, his church. Because when there's conflict in the church, even this church, even Bayview, ministry often goes undone. And I'm sure that the elders would agree with that statement. And as to how hard it is sometimes to put together a Bible study or to, you know, lead a, a small group or counsel somebody, and especially to sit down and try and write a sermon that you can share on a Sunday morning when you're dragging behind you the lead weight of church conflict into the wee hours of the morning. And when that you lay on your bed and look at the ceiling and stare at it until 3 o'clock in the morning, fretting and worrying about unresolved conflict, it becomes not only something that encumbrances you, but something that can entangle you, tangle you because you end up engaging in worry. That's the view from this side of the pulpit. On your side, there's another issue as well. And that is how unresolved conflict affects your ability to serve God and to worship God. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24? He said, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, not that you've done something wrong, but they're out of sorts with you. He said, leave it there. Go make it right. Settle that, and then come back and worship me. It is more important that we settle conflict amongst believers in a church body than to meet together and sing the songs that we sing and worship him and lift up his name. Because it speaks of hypocrisy. It rings hollow when there's not peace within the body of Christ. In fact, it's such an important issue. It affects your marriages. First Peter 3 verse 7 said, Husbands and wives ought to live in harmony with one another so that your prayers be not hindered. So this is really an essential thing, that we be at peace with each other, if we're going to run this race. There's another verse that is quoted from the Old Testament here, uh, 
the first part of verse 14 is a quote from Psalms 34, verse 14, where David said, we're to seek peace and we are to pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. And that word pursue there is the word radaf in the Hebrew. It literally is a runner's term. It means to run after something, to chase after it with all of your heart and all of your effort, like a cheetah on the Serengeti bringing down a gazelle. Give it everything you've got in seeking peace and running after it. So don't shrug your shoulders and blow it off like it's nothing. When there's conflict, you have to solve it. But then the writer of Hebrews balances this out by reminding us that it's not peace without, you know, at any cost. For notice verse 14 continues and says we are fourthly to pursue purity. He says, and after the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And some of your Bibles will translate that word sanctification uh, as holiness or purity. Uh, But um, this this is an interesting uh, subject or sanctification. Let me just give you a definition if I could. It uh, literally means to be set apart from something unto something. Be set apart from something unto something. Set apart from the world, from all that captures our hearts, from our own fallen nature, from that which entangles us as far as business and, 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 and work and, and, and even our you know, sports activity and so forth. If it takes the place of Christ, we're to separate from that and be separated unto him. Sanctification actually means to be made more and more like Christ. Now, I want to do something here, and um, this isn't in the notes. I kind of told Kevin in the first service that I want to interject something here, uh, and uh, uh, you didn't get to prove it. (laughs) But uh, I want to look at um, Romans chapter uh, 8, if we could, very quickly. Romans chapter 8, and in that passage... There, he is talking about what we call the process of sanctification, or of uh, salvation, rather. And notice this, we all know this verse, verse 28, Romans 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is the purpose of God picking us out of humanity? It is not to send some to hell and some to heaven. That's not the goal. The goal is to make us like Christ, conform to his image. And then verse 30. And whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now you notice that all those are in the past tense. Even glorified. <laughs> as I look around this room this morning, as far as I can tell, that ain't happened yet. At least not folks who are gathered here. This is glorified. Boy, it's something less than I anticipated for it to be. (laughs) Glorified means to be made like Christ, to be without sin nature, to be perfect in him. And that's coming. So let me just share something with you. I call this the tenses of salvation. And it's a good way of looking at where you are in your walk of faith. So if you could, in your mind's eye, just draw three columns, one over here and one in the center and then one over here. And this side is past The sinner is present. This one is future. So over here in this one, past, write the word justification. Over here, write the word sanctification in the center. And in the future, write glorification. So, in salvation, what happens? In justification, that is a judicial declaration by God that you are righteous. Why? Because he took our sin and put it on Christ who bore that and paid that debt. Because what is the penalty of sin? death. Christ paid that debt. 
he imputed it to him. And then he imputed his righteousness to us. So we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at us, he sees us as perfect, as sinless. Are we? Not in the least. And we prove that every day, don't we? If you don't say yes, you're lying. And there again, you proved it. <laughs> but he sees us as righteous. Then you come to sanctification. By the way, <clears throat> justification frees you from the penalty of sin, which is death. Sanctification, which is the ongoing process of growing more and more to be like Christ. That frees you from the power of sin. Glorification frees you from the presence of sin. That's a good way to look at it. And where are we today? We're not over here if you're a child of God. And we're not quite there. That's the finish line. Whether you close your eyes in death from a heart attack or a car wreck or whether God comes and calls us into the sky to be with him at a rapture. That's future. We're right here in the middle. Like we began this message, the middle of the race. And this is the hardest place to be because it means work. It's something we cooperate with God in. Paul wrote the church at Thessalonica and he said, God's will is your sanctification. That means that we more and more become more like Christ. If you're a child of God and you've been a child of God for 40 years or so, you may not be all that you should be yet, but surely you're better than you used to be. Amen? Because we're headed in that direction. And so that's, that's where we need to see this. We're in the middle of this race. And... <clears throat> The fact that, in fact, he's, he's quoting here when he says that no one without holiness will see the Lord. He's quoting not an Old Testament passage, but he's quoting Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 8, where he said, Blessed are the what? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is the goal of this race that we're running? It's to see God. It's to be with God in all of his august majesty. We could probably list a hundred different things that people would put down as the goal of their life. Everything from a, a full bank account to a beautiful home to a new car, successful business, to sending your kids off to college and them making you proud. But God says it's none of those things. You instead should have an insatiable desire, a driving passion to run well, finish strong, that you might one day step into my presence and see me. Scripture says that no man has seen God at any time. That's God the Father because he's a spirit. But we've seen the second member of the triune Godhead. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But one day we will see him not as the meek and mild Messiah. Not the one who came to serve and not be served. We will see him as the conquering king, the ruler of heaven and earth. Someone whose glory is so brilliant and bright that there is no sun in heaven. For he is the light. And we shall stand in his presence and hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
I have a couple in my church in Montana, older couple, they're about in their mid-80s. They served for about 35 years, I think, in Brazil as missionaries, and they speak Portuguese there. And uh, so when they came back to the Bitterroot Valley and settled there and came to our church, they still continued to serve by translating letters for missionaries, either from Portuguese to English or English to Portuguese, and they still do that. But uh, Roger and Gwen, Kirk is their name, just sweet and precious people. Uh, but she is uh, having some health issues, and her 85-year-old body is beginning to just shut down, and things that used to work don't work anymore. And every Sunday when I meet her, I'll ask her how she's doing, and I get what we call the organ recital, <laughs> which doesn't mean an organ. It means you get to hear about what's not working, what's troubling her, and uh, in any event, uh, that's okay. She's earned that right. And, uh, and I've told her, you know, I think that, and I'm learning this myself, because every morning just when I get up, I'm, I'm 73, and just to throw my legs out of bed, especially his bed, because it wants to hang on to you. It goes to the center. <clears throat> I, they got the good bed. I don't know what we're sleeping on. Anyway, uh, <laughs> here's the stink eye. <laughs> but uh, I throw my, my feet out of bed, and, and I have to do one of these to get up, you know, <laughs> because it doesn't work anymore. But I told her, I said, Gwen, you know, I think that just everything wearing out and the illnesses and the struggles and just the, the trouble there comes with aging is God's grace to us because I think it's designed to help us let go of this world. You know, we kind of like it here, don't we? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody just yet. <laughs> right? We like it here. But as you age, let me tell you, heaven starts looking a whole lot better and you start longing for it. And looking for it. But it's not a place. It's a person. It's Christ. And one day we shall see him. There's an old chorus we used to sing. I haven't thought of it until just now. But it says, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will race. So I'll gladly run the race until I see Christ. That is our hope. Keep running. Well, let me hurry on. <clears throat> Finally today, we need to encourage each other. And he gives us here some areas. And notice <clears throat> how he begins verse 15. He says, see to it. See to it. In fact, literally in the Greek, it's you see to it. Or... It's, it's plural. It should be you all, all of you see to it. And he begins to list the areas that we need to encourage each other. Let me just read that once again for you. He says, see to it that each one comes, does not come short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, thereby it many be defiled. And then he talks about Esau and his struggle with giving up his birthright for one meal. But notice here we see several things and he kind of he, he, he goes back and kind of picks up a theme that he began with in chapter 10 verse 24 when he talks about not forsaking the assembling of saints together and encouraging one another to see the day of the Lord approaching 
And here <clears throat> we see that there are several areas that we need to encourage each other in and spur each other on. And if you've ever been running a race, can you imagine somebody in a, in, a, in a long race and you're about halfway through and they come up to you and they look at you and they, and they say, uh, we're not going to make it, man. This is too far. I'm dying here. You're going to die too. We're, 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 we might as well give up. There's a shade tree over. Let's go over there. Or they look at you and they say, you look awful. You feel okay? Man, you look like you're about to die. Your face is beat red. You're not going to make it. You better quit now before you have a heart attack or something. That's the last thing we need to hear. But he's going to give us here some things that we do need to hear, some things we need to help people with. Four areas of encouragement. Number one, he tells us that within the church, uh, because we're all in this race together, he says, first of all, we should warn those who are off track. Verse 15, he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, of the grace of God. Later on in chapter 12, the author is going to go back to the theme that has preoccupied him throughout the entire book of Hebrews, and that, of course, is the theme of apostasy. What is apostasy? It comes from the Greek word apostasia, which means to fall away, fall away. His concern is that some of them, by returning to Judaism, are in danger of falling away from the faith. Not that the loss of their salvation, but the loss of certainly uh, the benefits and the blessings of God's sustaining grace. And by the way, if you struggle with the question of whether or not you could lose your salvation, whether there's some sin that you can commit that is greater than the grace of God, then I encourage you to talk to your elders and get some counsel from them on that because scripture is clear that when God births us, that just as a child, when a child is born, you can't change that. You can't make them be unborn. Neither can you make someone who is spiritually born be unborn either. We are in the hand of Christ no one can pluck us from his hand. And there's a lot of verses that talk about apostasy. It's not talking about spiritual death. It's talking about physical death. And you need to talk with them and get some good counsel on that. But here he's talking about them losing the benefits of God's sustaining grace and struggling through life because they're walking in the flesh. So he says, see to it. See to it that no one comes short of or misses the graces of God because they're off track. And his point is that we're not supposed to be Lone Ranger Christians. This is not a singular venture. It's a corporate venture. We're a community of believers. And we're responsible for one another. And when we see others in that race begin to lose their way and lag behind or take a wrong route or something, we need to warn them, encourage them, and pray for them. See to it, he says, that none of you come short of the grace of God. Then notice, secondly, he says in verse 15b, we need to stop those who would lead others astray. He said that no root of bitterness springing up caused trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, I used to think this was a reference to us individually, <clears throat> that no root of bitterness would grow up in us, and therefore we would be defiled by it. We would be led astray, but that's not what this means at all. This is not its primary meaning. In fact, it's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 18, in which that Old Testament passage, Moses is standing there on a hill just outside of the promised land, and he's giving his farewell address, and he's speaking to those who survived that 40-year trek through the wilderness. Who were they? The children of the ones who said, 
God can't deliver the promised land to us. They came to the door of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. God said, go in and possess the land. I will give it to you, a land that flowed with milk and honey. And they said, there's giants there. <laughs> they were like grasshoppers in their sight. He can't do it. We don't believe it. And God said, fine. Wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And they had a diet of manna for 40 years. Can you imagine that? Even T-bone steak every day of the week would be get old after a while. But their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They grew with them as they grew. He provided for them, but they died in the wilderness for lack of faith and trust in God. But their children got to go in. However, and this is needful, parents need to remind their children not only of biblical history, but their own history and how what God has done in their life. And so he, he shares with them all the things that happened to them as they wandered through the wilderness, things maybe they forgot. He reminds them that during those years, many roots of bitterness sprouted up in the camp of Israel. People who were bitter and angry, who like Korah, rebelled against God and against Moses. And what did they do in their bitterness? Our text tells us they caused trouble. And as they got other people involved, verse 15 says, many, many were defiled. That word defiled is a Greek verb that's often used to speak of dye or a stain. In fact, A.T. Robinson in his Greek study calls it an infectious disease. He says the contagion of sin is as terrible as any disease. As a runner, the last thing you need is for someone to pull up beside you and try to discourage you, try to tell you you can't make it. They need encouragement, and they need to be pointed in the right direction. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is don't let that happen in the church. God said in Proverbs, there's seven things that I hate, and seven is abomination to me. Six I hate, seven is abomination. And we usually think that the thing at the top of the list is the most important, the one that's last is the least important. In Hebrew poetry, it's just the other way around. He gives you six, and then number seven is the bonus. That's the most important. What is it? Those that sow dissension among the brethren. Those that cause turmoil in the church. What do we do about them? We warn them. We lovingly warn them. We pray for them. We encourage them to get back on the right track. But if they don't stop, we do the same thing with them that we do with weeds in the garden. We pull them up by their roots and we remove them and they become God's business at that point the writer of Hebrews says see to it see to it why because unity within the body of Christ is more important than any one individual who's divisive that sounds harsh but that's God's word number three don't let immorality sap your strength and we see here a statement about this character Esau, they says <clears throat> that there is no immoral person, first of all. And that's kind of a continuation of verse 15 and the list of things that uh, are, are, we are to see to. And, and, and he says that we're to make sure that no immoral person is found within the fellowship. The word immoral there comes the Greek word pornea, from which we get our word pornography. I think the King James comes right out and calls it a fornicator. And as I have said many times to my church in Montana, immorality simply means, in biblical context, any kind of sexual activity apart from a man and a woman in a covenant bond of marriage. That's pornea. And you can just fill in the blank with anything else 
sexual that our culture promotes and comes up with today, if it doesn't take place between a man and a woman within a covenant bond of marriage, it is pornea. And it's immoral. And the writer of Hebrews says, see to it that you don't allow that to take place in the church. For sexual sins cut to the very heart of a church. It cuts to the very heart of a marriage. And it cuts to the very heart of relationships. And it saps the strength of our testimony. It robs us of a platform to share the gospel. It takes that from us. And we end up promoting a message that says we're no different than the rest of the world. See to it. Finally, number four, he says watch out for the Esau syndrome. Notice once again what he says very quickly. He says, or a godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. For you have not, I'm sorry, that ends there, with tears. Um, <clears throat> what does the word godless mean here? Some of the Bible's translated as profane. Well, it comes from the Greek word babelios, which means trodden underfoot, or common, or unhallowed. It's said in contrast with the word hagios, which means holy, set apart, or consecrated. Holy, set apart, or consecrated. So Esau was a man wholly secular in his thinking. He just never figured God into the formula. He lived for the moment. He was a man's man, a hunter, big and a burly guy, who lived for the satisfaction and for pleasure of each day. He was a man who never really gave God a second thought in his decisions or in his plans. See to it, you don't have someone who's secular-minded like Esau. For when it came in and he was tired and hungry one day, he was met by his conniving brother, Jacob, whose name means liar or deceiver, and he couldn't see past the hunger of his own appetite at that moment. And he sold his birthright for a single meal, a single bowl of beans, if you would. Just kind of let that sink in for a moment. A birthright for a bowl of beans. Your birthright for success in business. Your testimony in Christ for a little pleasure of a one-night stand. Your testimony in Christ to have a boyfriend, maybe, or to be popular or successful. We need to be careful, folks, because verse 17 tells us there's some things in life you can do that we just can't undo. There's some things we can forfeit and lose that we can never recover. So the writer of Hebrews says, be careful. Guard against such people who will sacrifice their testimony in Christ and his church for a moment's pleasure. See to it. See to it. So this passage today encourages us to remember the goal that we had when we first started this race of faith. To pull up our arms, to straighten our knees, to focus upon the path, pursue peace, pursue godliness, to encourage each other, to not allow godless secular people like Esau to rise up and lead people astray and above all don't give up let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Heavenly Father we thank you for this time in your word thank you for these three weeks we've had in chapter 12 and Father 
I thank you for the privilege to be here, to share your word. I thank you, Father, for the way you've blessed my life throughout these years, for the children you've given me and the grandchildren, and for the fellowship and sweet times we've had together here. But, Father, as we bring this service to a close, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share your word and the power that there is in it. And, Father, we take it for granted. There are many here who are struggling, struggling just to live day to day and not fail and not stumble and not fall down. I pray, Father, you'd lift them up. I pray you'd give them courage and faith. I pray, Father, that more than anything else, that for Bayview Church, this would be a place where you are magnified, exalted, lifted up, and praised, but also where people leave this place doers of the word and not hearers only. Help us to not only sing of your grace, but, Father, to live in your grace and walk in faith. Help us, Father, to pass the baton on to our children and our children's children. And help us, Father, to be strengthened by you each day to that end. I thank you for Kevin, Lord, and for these other elders. Bless them, Father, with wisdom, with grace. Make them peaceable. Make them loving. Make them wise. And bless them, Father, as they serve you. And we will praise you in Christ's name. Amen and amen.